0: Welcome back, U92 listeners, far and wide, whether you're listening to this morning, afternoon, or night. You are listening to what is now the second episode of the Rebirth of Beyond the Arc, U92's only NBA show and podcast. Once again, I'm Daniel Woods, your host, joined by Nick Severini and Luke Wiggs. Guys, we're a week away from the NBA getting started back up. We've got exhibitions going. It's an exciting time to be a basketball fan, especially uh, really, without much going on outside of the TVT the last few months.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: I, I tell you, Daniel, I'm excited. Me and Luke got that on air chemistry going right back, uh, <laughs> right back on these podcasts. But I tell you what, Daniel, I am very excited. You know, NBA Twitter back in his full front. Um, the Nuggets just had to introduce basketball back with. Uh, Five guys standing seven foot or taller might as well be for their starting lineup. That was the best introduction to a welcome NBA back that I think I have ever seen personally. I'm just glad to see some uh, basketball back on the court in Orlando.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, expectations were high, and I think they were met. And like you said, the regular games haven't even started yet. Everyone's so obsessed with what's going on in these scrimmages. It's been a pretty good quality of basketball for uh, players that we haven't seen in months, and I'm very excited to get back into it
0: again that little moment we had there a reminder that despite the fact that sports are back we are not back in a studio yet we are recording over zoom uh, so this will this will be a little bit of a, an interesting trek into into production the next few months until we can get everybody back in one place uh, but uh, so let's get let's just get started right away just uh, some news and notes from the bubble is what i'm kind of dubbing this segment uh, for the time being, we're going to start out Dwight Howard uh, coming out, uh, refusing to wear a mask in the bubble, coming out as an anti-vaxxer. Uh, Luke, I'll, I'll go to you with this. Uh, Dwight Howard is a guy the last few years we've seen uh, have a little bit of uh, some eccentricities uh, to his life. What are your thoughts on <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, out of touch with reality really is what comes to mind when you talk about Dwight Howard and the situation. I think we broke Nick there. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, in this, it's all about optics. Whether whether he does or doesn't have a point here on the message he's trying to make, um, the the eyes of the nation going to be on these sports leagues, returning to it, You know, political activism, all that stuff that we'll talk about later on in the show. So it's just a bad look for the NBA to have a former superstar uh, say something that is simply ignorant and uh, hopefully will be dealt with. I mean, he doesn't really make that much money to fend off all the fines that he's going to get for not wearing a mask. So I'm sure the league will put a stop to it very quickly.
2: I'll say this. I'm more worried about uh, if he contracts the virus something and something, he's not wearing a mask, what that means for the Lakers locker room. Cause obviously these guys can be very close knit it together when they're on the floor. That's probably the main concern I have throughout all this because Dwight Howard's got, you know, he's got deep pockets in terms of money, but if, a bunch of players wind up getting it, and they start testing. I mean, that could mean the end of the Lakers' uh, attempted run for a championship that you would say they're the favorites for. I,
0: I can't disagree with either of what you said. I mean, Dwight Howard has, has proven the last few years that, like Luke said, he's not entirely in touch with reality. He's, he's out of – he's just not out of his mind, but he doesn't have – I don't even know how to put it. The guy just doesn't understand how to handle things in the public eye. So that that kind of opens up another door as far as things go. And like Nick said, uh, the damage that could be done to the Lakers locker room with this, I'll throw this back at you. Uh, what kind of impact do you think a positive test from within the bubble, Nick, could have on a locker room? Is—is is there Do you think there's a level of distrust that comes in there? What do you think that does for team chemistry?
2: Well, look what happened with the jazz with Rudy Gobert. First of all, I mean, he was pretty ostracized from that locker room in the months once the NBA um, was canceled eventually, but um, that relationship seemed to bond. But um, when you're on the chase for a championship for some of these guys, maybe their first ever NBA title, especially for a superstar like LeBron, who is still trying to chase Michael Jordan's legacy in his later in the later years of his career, a positive test means a lot of distrust. And, and, in in a huge proportion of that and it's it puts a lot of pressure on these players especially the role players who gets only a couple of minutes a game to stay healthy and don't risk themselves by uh, contracting the virus
1: yeah that would be career kryptonite especially if it's a role player to be the reason that the the ship went down uh just something to avoid and, and be a little bit more cautious there if you're just your everyday nba role player
0: so again, uh, Dwight Howard acting weird. It may, does it have a bigger impact than uh, we initially think? I'm not sure, uh, but it's it's definitely something uh, interesting to look at now. Uh, move on to something else. Just a, a little quick hitter here. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo coming out now, saying that his previous statements that said he didn't have a basket to shoot on during uh, during quarantine was was him trying to get ahead of his opponents, play mind games with his opponents, guys. Uh Luke, I'll go with you on this one. Uh just kind of a kind of a quick answer. Do you think that's something that's effective or is this just Giannis being Giannis? He's kind of proven to be a little bit of a goofy guy in the past.
1: Well, to quote Nicholas Severini, you'd think that Giannis was playing chess when the rest of the NBA was playing checkers, but it turns out he's playing backgammon. Um <laughs> No, not really. Nobody's gonna stay.
2: Resume.
1: No, uh Giannis isn't shooting, so I'm not going to either. I I think it's just <laughs> a, some antics here. Uh not really much to read into that situation.
2: I agree with that, Luke. I think. Um, imagine if LeBron James was like sitting down with his uh with his wine on IG Live, seeing that Giannis wasn't uh wasn't practicing. He's like, oh, I guess I'm not then. I guess that's that. <laughs> Nothing to worry about here. I see Lou Williams is at clubs with Jack Harlow. I guess I, I guess uh the quest for uh, chip number four is gonna be an easy one.
0: Getting a little bit more into guys going in and out of the bubble. We've already seen Zion Williamson. Uh, have to step out of the bubble for a family emergency the next guy uh, that we've seen to do that is is Patrick Beverly from the from the Los Angeles Clippers Montrezl Harrell uh, previously uh, left the the Clippers as well for a similar situation Uh, with Patrick Beverly stepping out for an emergency personal matter is how it's being termed things getting really close to getting back to play Uh, Nick I'll go to you with this do you think the possibility that Patrick Beverly could miss time could affect the Clippers moving forward. Obviously it's not going to be uh, much of an issue with seating. They're well set up in the Western conference playoffs. Uh, but if, if he has to step out and he's out of his element for a little while, what are you expecting this to do for the Clippers as they move towards the playoffs?
2: I'll say this. You have to be concerned with the growing speculation happening with the Clippers. And I feel like there's a fact that some of these players aren't really putting hundred percent of the work in to earn this title in Orlando. I mean, you've mentioned some of the players leaving the bubble and you look at the notoriety that some guys like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, where they sometimes don't give hundred percent during the regular season. Sometimes even in the post season, you wonder if that's going to translate into the Orlando bubble as well. I mean, I was a big fan of the Clippers before the lockdown. I still was during the lockdown, but Part of you has to wonder where the mentality is in that locker room and where that veteran leadership is to position them towards a the title because right now I really don't see it, judging by what's happening with some of the players.
1: And you No, know, I would argue when you look at Pat Bev and how he fits into the, the roster on this organization, obviously you've got Kawhi and you've got Paul George and then the tandem of Lou Williams and Montres Harrell who are facing their own issues right now. But I would argue that in terms of importance, Right behind those four players is Patrick Beverly as a defensive stopper. The season that he was having, eight points, five rebounds, four assists, shooting 38% from three. Uh, That would be a big loss for them if he's going to miss significant time and has to come back and get back into the swing of things. Uh, Reggie Jackson right now is going to start at point guard for the Clippers, if I'm not mistaken, and that's a huge downgrade. Uh, So it really becomes how soon can you get him back into the the bubble? How soon can you get him quarantined? Hopefully he doesn't go anywhere crazy when he's – out of the bubble, uh, and how soon can you get him back into action?
0: And that's that's an interesting thing to look at, and you go from a team that's well set in the playoffs to a team that is really, really going to have to fight through these seeding games uh, to even have a chance to make the eighth seed in the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Aaron Baines, we saw him have a big breakout season, saw him add some three-point shooting to his game. Uh, he's come out and announced uh, he's tested positive for uh, COVID-19. He's not going to be able to join the team. Uh, right now that came out yesterday he's still he's he's kind of over the hill a little bit but he's still recovering from from COVID-19 he's not going to be available it looks like when games start for a team uh, that needs to move up in the standings a lot they're the last team uh, to make it in the Western Conference before the cutoff uh, for the teams brought into the bubble Aaron Baines that's a huge loss Luke for the Suns as they try somehow to scrape out a playoff spot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When DeAndre Ayton went down with that PED suspension had to miss a ton of time, it was Aaron Baines and his play that elevated them to a level that kept them in playoff contention. And because of the three-point shooting, like you mentioned, 35% on the year and four attempts a game, which is a pretty big deal for a big man who hasn't really been a shooter in the past, along with 11.6 rebounds. He's a floor spacer, uh, a, a guy that you can put in the corner and let Booker do his thing going downhill. That would be a significant loss for them. And when you're testing positive, It's a little bit more different than just leaving the bubble. Uh, His road to recovery, his road to return, is just a little bit longer. So every single game matters for Phoenix. They've got to win just about every single game.
2: They could have turned into potentially a dangerous threat to make the playoffs in the bubble. With the absence of Aaron Baines, a good floor spacer who can grab a board or two in the game as well, it's going to leave a big hole in that lineup, and it really diminishes their chances at, uh, at making the playoffs with him out.
0: So the Suns lose Aaron Baines, a big contributor. There They get another big contributor back. Ricky Rubio uh, had previously tested positive for COVID-19. He's now been admitted to the bubble after multiple negative tests. Him, along with Russell Westbrook, are really the two guys that stand out at the top that had previous positive tests and are able to come back into the bubble now, have tested negative at least twice. Uh, these guys are big contributors for their team, and uh, Russell Westbrook obviously more so than Ricky Rubio as he's on a playoff team, one of the best players on a playoff team uh, with the Houston Rockets. Uh, let's let's go with him first. Nick, uh, Russell Westbrook right back into the thick of things, uh, but coming off COVID-19, it's a respiratory illness. The conditioning might not be there. Uh, what do you expect for Russell Westbrook coming back with the Rockets, and, and how do you think that affects them going into these seeding
2: games? In terms of his work ethic and the way he works, you know he's going to be 100% conditioned post-coronavirus or not to uh, try to lead this rocket, team because that's just Westbrook's mentality. He's always going to have that unlimited engine in his resume.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Nick. If you're not really worried about a player coming back from COVID-19 and still maintaining that, feet, that t- top physical condition is what I was looking for. Uh, Russell Westbrook's the top of that uh, list. And I will say this. I was hesitant on how soon he was going to return to play for the Rockets, who were a favorite of mine to win the NBA title before the season started. Uh, And I didn't want to say anything last show, but I will say now that with him coming back, I have to watch him play first to make sure that he's okay. Like you said, respiratory infection. But the, the Rockets, to me, move up into the top three in terms of contenders for that Western Conference championship with him back on the roster.
2: I tell you what, Luke. One thing I really want to see—I want to see Nuggets Rockets. I want to see oh, both yeah. of those lineups against each other. To that to would toe. be. Listen, if you put the Nuggets, if you slide uh, Michael Porter Jr. into there, I think you got a real dangerous <laughs> team right now. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm not saying. I'm just saying.
0: All right, last point here from the kind of news and notes section uh, that we're starting off with here. Uh, Zion Williamson, we talked about earlier, stepped outside of the bubble. Along with with Patrick Beverly now, another guy that has has had to leave Orlando for family emergencies, uh, they're saying Zion's being tested daily outside the bubble. Uh, so far each one has come back negative, but obviously there's a, a delay to the results there uh, with him coming back with with him being tested daily, they're saying that could shorten his returning quarantine period. Uh, Luke, for these guys who are who are leaving the bubble uh, w- when they come back the shortened quarantine period that's obviously going to help their teams but is that any kind of a larger concern that even though they are being tested daily outside the bubble the delay on those tests could uh, turn out a positive once they come back into the bubble
1: i mean it's not as big of a concern for me because if you're outside the bubble you're getting tested more than somebody inside the bubble you'd have to keep that in mind and i'm sure a player in the pressure in the, pressure and the situation uh, that zion is, is is going to be careful he left the uh the the bubble because of an emergency. So he's obviously not out, uh, doing a Lou Williams. Um, but, and this is a Zion Williamson that, uh, allegedly, allegedly lost a ton of weight. Uh, we saw him on the other side of quarantine. He's very healthy. And I think that we would all agree that Zion Williamson has a large percentage to do with why the NBA expanded their team format and didn't just bring in, uh, the top eight playoff teams from each division. Uh, so rushing him back into action is top priority, not just for the Pelicans, but for the NBA as a whole. And like I said, the fact that he's being tested so frequently and being watched so carefully, I would argue that it's almost safer than being a player in the NBA bubble.
2: Yeah. With the amount of testing that he's been getting, he's been quarantining himself. He's definitely not looking to contract the virus at all. And Yeah, Luke, you bring up a really good point talking about Zion Williamson. I'll say this. The Pelicans, they looked very, very good against the uh, Nets yesterday as well. They looked very fresh against uh, Brooklyn. When you get Zion into that type of a lineup, you're looking at the Pelicans. This is looking to be a very dangerous team uh, once play starts in the bubble.
0: So uh, you, you mentioned play starting in the bubble, Nick, and that's exactly what happened Wednesday night. Teams starting exhibition games. Uh, a quick rundown of the scores from the first two nights of that. Uh, the first game, Los Angeles Clippers against the Orlando Magic. Los Angeles 99, Orlando 90. Uh, the Nuggets in the next one take the win over the Luke's Wizards, 89-82. to 82. We'll talk about the Nuggets here a decent bit in this episode. Uh, the New Orleans Pelicans, a big blowout win over the Nets. I'm sorry, Nick. Your yeah, 99, yeah. 99 to 99-68. Uh, and then the final game from Wednesday, the Miami Heat 104, Sacramento Kings 98. And then we move on to last night, Thursday night, Milwaukee Bucks over the San Antonio Spurs, 113-92. Uh, the Pacers over the Blazers, 91-88. And the Mavericks with a win over the Lakers, 108-104. Big games from Seth Curry and Bobon Marjanovic in that one for Dallas. And the final game to this point, the Phoenix Suns over the Utah Jazz, 101-88. to Guys, uh, we'll start off uh, just with first impressions uh, so far from the from the scrimmage games so far obviously Bull Bull uh, for the Nuggets comes out hot 16 points 10 rebounds six blocks uh, one he, drug test there you go he's uh, drug tested afterward the first uh, the first appearance for the Nuggets for Bull Bull obviously something that's been anticipated since he went in the second round had so many injury issues at Oregon obviously that was the most impressive performance I think that we've seen at least pushed in the media so far. What stood out to you guys on the opening nights for these exhibitions?
1: Well I'll give Nick the opportunity to go on a bull bowl, bowl rant here in a section as he scored 16 points on Jerry and Grant and Troy Brown Jr. and the worst offense or defense in the NBA. Uh, but some of these teams offensively buzz kill you look at the Clippers, you look at the Pelicans And the Miami Heat, and we'll talk about the Heat a little bit later on. I'm sure Um, these are 40-minute scrimmages, and these teams are still approaching 100 points. The Clippers looked like they came back and didn't skip a beat. Uh, The Pelicans had five different players in double figures without Zion, which is a huge uh, positive sign for them. Etan Moore with 14, Um, and the Kings as well. Without the Aaron Fox, Harrison Barnes, and Rashawn Holmes, uh, they put up 98 points on the Miami Heat team that outpaced them with 104, but With Fox coming back, Barnes and Holmes as well, right now their front court, or rather their two, their three, and their four are Kent Bazemore and uh, Nemanja Bialica. So putting up 98 points with those two in your starting lineup, uh, I think that the Kings, in my mind, just become a a very interesting team to follow here the next couple of days or weeks.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you you want me to talk about the Nuggets, in all seriousness, I was joking a lot about Bull Bull, but I think it did have a – A very impressive performance, given that he he hasn't played this season, has he? He's been out injured for uh, the entirety of it. So seeing him, you know, get some points, get some boards, get six blocks as well is definitely uh, a positive. But I don't see him really becoming a contributor once play starts and the ante gets up. He doesn't have a lot of vertical speed at all in his game. He, uh, you know, he'll be a threat down low. He'll be a threat in the paint, but I really don't see him producing much for this Nuggets team in all honesty since we've been talking about it yeah
0: that that kind of stood out to me as well again Bol Bol is is a freak of nature he's seven foot three he can handle the ball he can shoot it from the outside and he can handle himself pretty well in the low post but when it comes to just the athletic factors of the game, even at seven foot three, he's just not quite there. Like you said, Nick, he doesn't have the foot speed. I don't think he's a great vertical athlete. Uh, he's certainly somebody that kind of falls into that unicorn category we've seen with these big men that can do it all in recent years. I'm just not sure that that first performance, like Luke said, against a shorthanded Wizards team is kind of indicative of what we're going to see out of him over the long term. And, Luke, I want to go back to something you mentioned, talking about the Miami Heat, uh, talking about how they got some pretty solid performances in that uh, first game against the Kings. Uh, somebody that really impressed me was Duncan Robinson, a guy that uh, has come out of nowhere in the last uh, probably year and a half to be a huge contributor for this Miami Heat team. A uh, former Division Three player transferred up to Michigan and has now established a role for himself in the NBA as one of uh, the the best high-percentage three-point shooters out there. He hits five threes against the Kings the other night. Uh, He's kind of one of the faces, along with Kendrick Nunn, of this movement with the Heat where they've just been able to find guys out of nowhere, find the diamonds in the rough. What do you guys see uh, with with Duncan Robinson shooting the ball at a high level, with everybody else uh, in addition to Jimmy Butler, it looks like, uh, playing well early on for the Heat. What do you guys see? Uh, Luke, I'll start with you. What do you see this team doing uh, coming into the playoffs?
1: A team that could do a ton of damage. It, it really depends on if you catch them on a good day because they live and die by the three-point shot. And we saw how that turned out for the Houston Rockets last year in the Western Conference Finals. So the same could be said for the Miami Heat. You mentioned Robinson. None I don't think started yesterday. Goran Dragic was put back into the starting lineup and played well. And, and Jimmy Butler is so key to this team's success. And everything I read about the scrimmage that they had the other day, and I wasn't able to watch it, unfortunately, was Miami Heat beat riders just praising Jimmy Butler for trying to set up his teammates so well. You know, this was a score-first guy when he was in Minnesota and a score-first guy when he tried to go to the Sixers and, of course, his days back in Chicago. And he's kind of evolved and matured as a passer, and the Heat are reaping the benefits of that, along with Bam Adebayo. And Kelly O'Linick actually played extremely well Uh, top five most hated player in the league by me, but I think he had 12-5-5. and Uh, It's a very well-put-together roster, but again, it it really all comes down to whether or not they're going to hit their shots over a seven-game series. I'd like their odds against anybody, Uh, but uh, again, they're going to live and die by their success or lack of success from the three-point line.
2: I'll say this. The Heat are a team that absolutely nobody wants to play at the moment, and it's the fact that they're a team that is just so deep in terms of their depth and, and paired with the fact that I mean, they're just so clinical in all areas of the floor. Yes, they rely heavily on the three-point shot, but some of their best role players, I would argue, don't shoot threes, especially Bam Adebayo and guys like that who are just grueling down low and can do everything inside the paint and out. You look at this Heat team, it reminds me a lot of the Mavericks team that won the title, except they don't have that, Adequate star. You could say they have Jimmy Butler, but they don't have that main star that could really carry them late in games. I think that'll eventually be their downfall. All
0: right. So we go from uh, the teams that impressed. We talk about Miami. We talk about Denver. We talk about individual teams that impressed as well. Now teams that disappointed a little bit. Nick, I will put this ball in your court as you are the resident Knicks Nets fan, the resident Nets expert. They end up in a thirty-point blowout loss to the zion list. Pelicans the other night I am going to give you this platform uh, to discuss what is going on with the Brooklyn Nets what is happening with them without Kyrie Irving without some of their better players as we discussed last episode Uh, this is your time to rant go for it
2: I mean I'm not going to rant too much in all honesty Daniel because this is kind of what I expected you know this is a team with such a different identity than one that uh was in the playoffs last year. A lot of roster changes. Obviously, we have two superstars who are not playing in the Orlando bubble and a variety of role players that are joining them outside the bubble as well. And you add on top of the fact that I think has been underestimated is the fact that Sean Atkinson isn't there anymore and was replaced by Jacques Avon, who – completely manages this team different. It's a lot more of a European style passing around the floor, more emphasis on passing and getting a jump shot rather than the pace and space that Atkinson uh, favored during his tenure tonight. So it's a completely different identity and it's a completely new team. I'm not as worried about it because my expectations were very low. It's still, of course, preseason, the games don't count yet, but um, a very ugly performance from a group of guys who really need to bond with their chemistry very quickly if they want to make the playoffs
1: and I do want to add to that we didn't get to see the debut of Jamal Crawford and I don't believe Joe Harris played as well and and Nick's right expectations are low one of the players I did have high expectations for Karis LeVert just really frankly was poor in that game 10 points and he shot 0 of 6 from 3 and 5 of 18 from the field you know if you're looking for your spark offensively that conversation starts and stops with him Uh, But I will say this, uh, Nick mentioned the the shakeup at the coaching change, an interesting storyline that came out of that game yesterday. And I can't pronounce the coach's name. I know Nick said it a moment ago. Uh, There you go. Uh, Rodionis Karouks is potentially uh, going to play at center, get minutes at the five and spare Jared Allen because apparently right now there's only three players on the Nets roster that are over six foot nine. So I'm excited to see the European man be that pace and space big and try to spread the floor for the Nets. I don't think it's going to help their odds in this season, but next year um, with the roster that they've got put together, it would be really cool to see them size down a little bit. Because, again, people lie about it, but Kevin Durant's seven feet tall. You can get away with playing somebody at the five with KD on the floor. So that's a fun little experiment that I would be excited to be watching over the next couple of games if I was a Nets fan.
0: That's something interesting to look at that, that I want to bring up here. And, Luke, I'll throw this back at you because you are a fan of another team, the Washington Wizards, that are going to be operating a little bit shorthanded. For some of these teams that are towards the back end of the playoffs, may not have a guaranteed spot right now, do you think this is kind of an opportunity uh, being a little shorthanded, having some role players getting more minutes than they normally would have in a normal regular season and a normal playoff? Do you think a lot of these back-end teams are going to take these opportunities to experiment with lineups a little bit, uh, kind of see what they can do moving forward, see if they find something that works that they can put to use in 2021?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You saw that with the San Antonio Spurs without LaMarcus Aldridge. They le- they sent out some pretty wild lineups in their game against the Bucs that they lost. And speaking as a Wizards fan, uh, I-, I mentioned somebody needing to step up to be the offensive catalyst for the Nets. Uh, For the Wizards, that pretty clearly needs to be Rui Hachimura. So it's very cool uh, to see the Wizards go through several games with him as their number one scoring option. And I think he rose to the challenge uh, in the game that they played against the Nuggets, even though they lost. And and then it becomes an opportunity uh, for them to cycle in role players and give them auditions for roles to see who's going to be the first off the bench next year, whether it's a Shabazz Napier Ornish Smith, you know, the battle between Admiral Schofield and Isaac Bonga, Jerry and Grant, who they called up from the G League, uh, just opportunities for players to showcase. It's almost like the summer league, but it matters a lot more. And and there's going to be some opportunities and some roles won, I think, in some of these lesser teams like the Nets, like the Wizards and the Spurs that comes out of this abbreviated time in Orlando.
0: Yeah, that That makes a lot of sense that 's something i 'm really excited to see as these games start to happen there 's a lot of teams that moving towards the back end of those playoffs know they 're not prob- they're, they know they 're not contending for a title obviously teams that their superstars didn't uh did not come with them to Orlando for one reason or another and i 'm excited to see them experiment a little bit more and as we get into some of the storylines that we 've seen coming out of of these Uh, I can't even think of the word. These exhibition games, that's what it is, that are going on right now. We talked a little bit about Bowl Bowl and the Nuggets earlier. Uh, When it comes down to it, uh, can Bowl Bowl be a legitimate factor in the playoffs? Nick, I know you said that you don't think Bowl Bowl is going to be a legitimate factor, at least right away for the Nuggets. Personally, I don't think that either. Luke, I'd like to get your opinion on that.
1: You know, I was joking. He put up 16 points against a Wizards team that's truly horrible defensively. Troy Brown, Jr., six, So it was a little bit of a mismatch there. I, I don't think his role is going to be what we saw yesterday. But you're talking about a guy who you can give 10 or 11 minutes to a game, maybe a little bit more than that, who's going to be an absolute matchup nightmare. You know, if you've got a true big in the game, you can put him in at the 5, and he drags the big away from the rim out to the corner to respect his shot. Uh trying him at the three you could make him a matchup nightmare against teams that start to go smaller at that position uh the nuggets come to mind well they are the nuggets that is a dumb thing for me to say uh the portland trailblazers is is what i was going to say uh teams that are going to size down at the three you can try to get a mismatch there you know an elite rim protector at that seven foot three size he has a role he has a very legitimate role um, in what the Nuggets are going to do. It's not going to be as pronounced as what we saw in the scrimmage yesterday, but I would expect uh, Bulbul to give you seven, eight points, four five rebounds a game in an abbreviated time, call it 10 to 15 minutes off the bench.
0: All right, so so Nick, obviously the two of us agree he's not going to be a superstar. As far as what Luke just said, do you think Bulbul as a role player – can make an impact for this Nuggets team, maybe push them a little bit further into the discussion in the Western Conference?
2: I mean, it depends on the team that they face, in all honesty, Daniel. I mean, you look at Bol Bol, I I can't underestimate this enough. He has no vertical speed. If you're you're against a team that runs the pace in space, he's going to be eaten alive. I mean, if they play the Rockets, they're going to get a shot before he crosses half court, in my personal opinion. I just don't think he has the speed for it. Is there a place for him on this roster against a slower – a slower team that they play against, 100%, I think so, because he's got, he's got a lot of versatility in his game. He's got, he had six blocks in a game. I understand it was the Wizards, but it's still six blocks in a game. It was a fantastic number for him. And he's shown that he could be ruthless in the paint. It's just a matter of if he can get to the paint, that's the big question for him.
0: Okay, so we talked about Bol somebody that's not really established. Uh, and is coming off an injury. Somebody that we saw play this year that's definitely an established star in this league, a rising star in this league, Victor Oladipo, has not committed to playing uh, in actual games for the Indiana Pacers uh, in this this NBA restart. He's in the bubble. He participated in their exhibition game earlier this week. Uh, From your perspective, I'll start with you, Nick. Victor Oladipo uh, seems like he's trending towards playing uh, for you, uh, what do you think goes into that decision? And then if you're the Indiana Pacers and he does not play, uh, for somebody that is is in a playoff spot but is certainly not secure in your ability to move into the second or third round, what does that do for the Indiana Pacers losing such a big star?
2: On the last sports show that we did before the uh, lockdown, Daniel, I said that the Indiana Pacers were – the most underrated team in the NBA. And if Oladipo were to come back into this team and be as productive as he was in previous years, that they are contender for the Eastern conference finals. And I still believe that, but Oladipo is such a toss up at the moment. We really have no idea because there are reports saying he is a report saying that he is. I know he's not in the bubble now and that's for certain, but if he comes back, I think this team is wicked dangerous in the Eastern conference, especially in a weaker Eastern conference. Now with some of these players being out and, you know, some other factors being put in. Without him, I think you're losing the heart of your team personally. I th- I think they might be able to make it past the first round, depending on who their opponent is. But I have no expectation for them without Oladipo on this team.
1: This team shot 40% from the field yesterday. There's a lot of signs of wear and tear. They still beat the Blazers. I get that 91 88 uh, without Miles Turner and Devonta Sabonis. But you have to convince Oladipo that him coming back is worth it or he's going to elect to stay out of the bubble and and try to remain healthy. If I were a betting man, I would guess that I don't think he's going to play, and I don't really think it makes much of a difference for the Pacers. You're talking about best-case scenario with Oladipo, a first-round playoff victory, but with Oladipo coming back from injury and a team that looks rusty uh, coming into Orlando, I would say that that's pretty much their ceiling.
0: It's an interesting thing to look at with the Pacers because they are in a little bit of a seeding battle right now. Obviously, home court advantage isn't a huge thing. It's not a thing at all in the NBA bubble right now. But they sit in the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference right now, two games behind the Miami Heat. And they're actually tied currently with the Philadelphia 76ers. They hold a tiebreaker there. So they have the fifth seed. They have an identical record with the 76ers that are in the sixth seed. Obviously, moving up beyond the Miami Heat is not a huge deal for the Pacers as they would just be swapping four or five. They would have the same opponent, and there's no home court advantage to go into this. But if they do drop down to the sixth seed, Luke, I'll go with you on this one, and end up playing the Boston Celtics in the first round, I think you would certainly agree with me. The Miami Heat are a more desirable first-round opponent for the Indiana Pacers than having to square off with the Boston Celtics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to get my notes here. Yeah, when we did our show the first time, I had the Pacers falling all the way down to that sixth seed because I wasn't convinced of what they were going to do with or without Oladipo. Uh, you like the way they match up against the Heat as opposed to the perennial powerhouses and the Bucks and the Raptors and the Celtics at the top of that division and the length of the 76ers that would just give them problems. So yeah, I would say the Heat would be best case scenario matchup for them. Uh, but again, we just talked about how explosive Miami could be. You could get run off the court very quickly. Uh, You know, Victor Oladipo is an above-average two-way NBA player, but returning from injury, is he still going to be that? And outside of that, you know, this is a a Pacers team that's built around their size with Turner and Sabonis uh, taking over a huge offensive workload this year. They're not exactly guard-oriented. I know they have – there's Malcolm Brogdon, right, Uh, as their point guard right now, but he's not exactly a defensive force. So even in a matchup against the Heat, I wouldn't favor the Pacers. And I say all that to say this, that they're not – regardless of who they match up with in the first round, even with Oladipo, again, I don't have the same sentiments that Nick does. I'm sure he'll disagree. But I don't like their chances against any of those top five teams in the East.
2: If this was was without Victor Oladipo, I would completely agree with that. I would say that they could put up a fight. But I think we forget – I mean, I've watched him play in person. I've watched him play in Indiana now – that's rare considering that he's had injury problems in the past. I'm not saying he hasn't, but when he's at hundred percent, I genuinely think he's one of the most underrated players in the league. I genuinely believe that his ability to take over a game is widely renowned. You know what I mean? I just think it's so tough because the East is definitely top heavy, but there are some very talented teams. I would I wouldn't mind their chances against a team like Boston. I think they match up fairly well with them. But uh, against Miami, I just think Miami and Indiana are pretty similar in terms of talent, the fact that they're both kind of dark horses in this Eastern Conference. Either way, no matter what the top half of the NBA shapes up in that Eastern Conference, if it's Indiana or Miami, I'm not going to count them out.
1: Let me just really quick spitball an idea at you, either one of you, uh, in terms of what would be the most favorable matchup. Let me throw the Toronto Raptors into that conversation. Could you see, if all Depot comes back as as poised as Nick thinks he would, them playing bully ball, uh, him and Brogdon, against those much smaller, an older Lowry and a not defensively capable at all Fred Van Vliet, would you say that they would have a chance in that series and then just try to see if Devontae Sabonis can hold on to Pascal Siakam for dear life? I like the Turner matchup against Gasol. Uh, Turner's much more athletic and a much better player could you potentially see that being a favorable draw for them? I know that's a reach.
2: If we're I, I, getting into –
0: you could go first, Dan, on my uh, bad. Okay. Uh, what I was just going to say is in terms of matchups, I think a healthy Victor Oladipo, a 100% Victor Oladipo added into that team, matched up with the Toronto Raptors, I think that may actually, in terms of getting to the second round, probably be a best-case scenario for me uh, because the Toronto Raptors obviously the defending champions they lose Kawhi Leonard but they they're still at, at playing at such a high level Pascal Siakam's taken a step forward there's nobody on that Pacers roster that can match up with him uh, but like you said Luke the matchups uh, for the Pacers going into that game are are outstanding somebody's going to have to guard uh, Victor Oladipo it's probably Kyle Lowry in that lineup and that leaves uh, Malcolm Brogdon uh, who in in Oladipo's stead has turned into Uh, one of the more underrated players in the league, in my opinion. That leaves Fred Van Vliet to deal with him, and that's not something that I think the the Raptors want to deal with. And then Mark Gasol on the backside of his career having to to go up against such an athletic big in Miles Turner, a big who can step out and hit the three as well. I think that kind of matchup for the Indiana Pacers is certainly – a scenario that they would probably like to see because they can exploit some of those situations and maybe steal a series from Toronto.
2: I just want to say this involving Toronto, because I'm, I'm kind of opening this up as a question, but – You mentioned Sabonis on Pascal Siakam. In my opinion, I understand he's improved a lot from last year to this year especially, but he has not proven to me in a playoff situation, in a game-time situation, that he could create his own shot and get a bucket. I think it revolves around guys like Fred VanVleet and especially that backcourt. But you mentioned Sabonis on Siakam being a huge mismatch. I don't think it's as big of a mismatch as you would think, considering if it's a playoff situation, Siakam hasn't proven that he could do that.
1: You know, Nick, I agree with you there, and I think I said this to you the last time we had this discussion. Uh, when it comes to the Raptors in playoff series uh, this year, they don't want to get into a situation where it's a tight game down the stretch. I mean, they're going to have to win games by five or ten points and not have to put the ball in Kyle Lowry's hands with a chance to make the decision down the stretch, or Fred Van Vliet, because I don't like any of their players' odds in that situation. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, but uh, But again, going back to the discussion we have here about the Toronto Raptors, and the Pacers. The more I look at it, you know, you've got the heat and all their guard depth and all the shots that they can put up. You've got the Celtics with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, which is a huge matchup problem for the Pacers. Obviously, the Bucks are the Bucks, and the 76ers uh, have that force in the front court that you think would match up well. Sabonis on Harris and uh, Miles Turner on uh, uh, the big man, Joel Embiid. Um, but then Ben Simmons is left alone to just tear apart the smaller guards for the Pacers. So, to go for a circle, I'll, I'll double down and say that I think that the Raptors absolutely would be the best-case scenario for the Pacers. Now, don't get me wrong. I would not favor the Pacers in that series. I'm saying if you're a desperate Indiana fan looking for a chance to sneak into the second round, that would be the team that I would want.
0: That, that makes a ton of sense. I think uh, the Pacers are in an interesting position because, obviously, the bottom half of the playoffs, you're not going to be favored – uh, in most cases against any of those top four seeds. Uh, but they're in a position where they've got a star coming back if Victor Oladipo opts in. And now we take a step out west. Uh, another team that, whether you want to call Yusuf Nurkic or a star or not, has a huge uh, contributor coming back in Nurkic is uh, the Portland Trailblazers. We talked extensively about them last week. Uh, they're a team that's going to be fighting to get into the playoffs. They're three and a half games back of the eight seed that's currently held by the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic, first game since he broke his leg in March of 2019. That was Thursday night. Uh, He scores 14 points, eight rebounds on six of a ten temps in 20 minutes uh, for the Trailblazers. He looks like he's pretty close to full strength. You add depth behind him now with Hassan Whiteside and Zach Collins. Uh, What does a healthy Yusuf Nurkic team, Nick, mean for uh, the Portland Trailblazers and if he is
2: 100%, what can they do trying to sneak into the back end of the playoffs? A healthy Nurkic, 100%, completely changes the tide of this Blazer team. Because I think this team goes from a fringe playoff team. Correct me if I'm wrong, were they, even in, the, were, were they in the top eight prior to the lockdown? I don't believe they were. No, they are currently ninth in the West. They were ninth in the West. I think with Nurkic, you finally have that explosive player download that you've been missing. I understand Whiteside has improved tremendously since he's been on the Blazers, but he's still not Nurkic, in my opinion, with what Nurkic could do um, from the perimeter to the paint. I think that completely spaces out the floor even more for guys like Will uh, Lillard and McCollum to really put their work in. And I think it's the main catalyst for the Blazers' success. If we get 100% Nurkic on this team, I think they're guaranteed playoffs right here.
1: Yeah, I would, I would double down on what Nick said there. I don't know if I would uh, echo the same sentiment with the talent that Yusuf Nurkic possesses. Uh, I think Hassan Whiteside had a phenomenal season for them, and I would argue that Nurkic would start on the bench with uh, Whiteside still in the starting lineup. And, Daniel, you touched on it too. This is a team that also gets Zach Collins back. So I'll say this. In terms of their, let's call it regular season, I don't know, pool play game, whatever you want to call it, success, I don't think it matters that much that Nurkic is back. But I'll tell you where it does matter the most. uh, All these teams vying for that last playoff spot will most likely get matched up against the L.A. Lakers. Having Nurkic and Collins and Whiteside all healthy and all playing some form of their best basketball is a godsend when you match up against Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee and everything else that the Lakers are going to send at you. They're going to play with two traditional bigs, and the Trailblazers can match that uh, as well as any NBA team that's vying for that last spot, if not better. They match up better as opposed to the Grizzlies and maybe the Pelicans and the Kings as well. So in terms of their seeding games, not so much, but Nurkic coming back is a is a big send for a team that's going to try to go toe-to-toe with the Lakers here in the first round.
2: The Lakers' nightmare matchup is the Blazers. I think we oh, can all sure. agree on that. When, yeah, you, when sure. you consider the fact that they lost a lot of their backcourt um, talent for Los Angeles, you know, with guys like Avery Bradley out in company and they have to pick up these, you know – Deion Waiters Blazers. and Smith, you know, from you know from the porch, basically to come and play. You know, you're, they're going to rely on their front court, and I think the Blazers are one of the very rare teams where their front court can be matched with Whiteside and Nurkic and Collins. These are dangerous guys down low. Anthony Davis is going to struggle to work against these guys. Add on top of the fact that Dwight Howard isn't going to be as clinical in getting rebounds, and all of a sudden you're looking at the Lakers being pretty vulnerable in the first round.
0: Yeah, that's something else I wanted to talk about because if you do get that first round matchup, let's go a little bit more into what you would get in that series. Obviously, LeBron James is a mismatch for anybody in the league, but Luke, we, the the issue I would see with the Trailblazers in that situation is at the small forward position. They have struggled mightily to find any kind of consistency there. They had Trevor Ariza in that spot, but if correct me if I'm wrong, but he's opted out of the NBA restart. Uh, for family reasons Uh, they had Mario Hazonia in that spot and he showed uh, some signs of life with 15 points on Thursday night if the trailblazers do get into this matchup I'm not sure having Yusuf Nurkic really matters because I envision LeBron James running wild on these wings that the trailblazers are going to throw at
1: him maybe I would and you're right I think about Ariza and uh zonia was the guy that blocked LeBron's shot towards the end of last season that it? is fun. true i mean that's not that's not really a big story point i agree i will say this when you're looking at matchup to matchup obviously you give the backcourt of the trailblazers the advantage with lillard and McCollum, uh and in the front court you'd have to tip your cap towards anthony davis but uh, the other forward spot i think would lean more towards the trailblazers in my opinion and you're right then it comes down to lebron james but I understand he's still playing great basketball. I don't want to throw dirt on the legacy of the king, but he's turned himself into more of a a playmaker now in, in his later age. You're asking for him to not only play 38-40 minutes a game as playoff LeBron, but you're asking him to score 35 plus points per game, do it from beyond the arc and near the rim because Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside are both very talented rim protectors, and that's 12 fouls that you have to play around with. Zach Collins as well, that can just hammer LeBron anytime he gets into the paint. Um, That's a lot of strain to put on his shoulders. Can he do it? Sure, it's LeBron, but you're right, Daniel, for them to exploit that mismatch, they would have to ask LeBron to do an awful lot, and that's a ton of strain to put on his shoulders, and if they get past the trailblazers, that's the kind of thing that really wears the Lakers down if they're trying to go on a deep postseason run. If it takes them six games to dispatch the Trailblazers, that would be a huge problem in terms of fatigue uh, for the rest of the postseason.
2: I've got a question. If we're doing a genuine power breaking of teams, the Lakers don't want to play. I would say the Blazers are like in the top three, maybe top two. For you me.
1: mean of all teams, period, or in the if all
2: teams period? in the Western Conference? I'm thinking of. Hmm. I mean, because you're thinking of the matchups with this team. I mean that that front court is going to be strangled. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they played Whiteside and Nurkic on the floor at the same time and then no, try I, to cover and try to cover you. up like Anthony Davis or Howard, whoever starting down low for them. And then all of a sudden you have a poor backcourt led by Alex Caruso. And I mean, that's a struggle. I mean, I would, I would be more worried about the Blazers than teams like, I mean, the jazz for the Thunder or the Thunder. Exactly. I mean, this is turning into a tough matchup for them.
0: Yeah, to your point, Nick, uh, Terry Stotts, it's it's been said, has been considering kind of a two-center lineup with Nurkic and Whiteside. Uh, Some people were expecting to see that last night. However, Hassan Whiteside missed the game last night with a minor Achilles and calf issue. Uh, He's listed as day-to-day. He's expected to play in their next game against Toronto on Saturday. That's definitely something interesting to pose because – uh, this this Los Angeles Lakers team obviously their backcourt does not really match up with a lot of the high-end team the teams in this Western Conference but so many teams can't match up with their front court uh, Luke when you really think about it the teams that can match up in that regard I really only see the Portland Trailblazers and the Denver Nuggets that can come close to matching the Lakers up front uh, do you think that's something that can be exploited at least with the trailblazers if they make the playoffs in the first round and right now as it sits uh, the denver nuggets possibly in what would be a western conference finals matchup
1: yeah definitely and i'll say this right now i'll change the trailblazers name to the laker killers because i think that this is a roster that's perfectly put up to match up with the lakers but not anybody else you know you go starting five v starting five Best case scenario for Portland, obviously outside of the small four position, I get that, but we've covered that already. But outside of that, I don't like their odds against any of the teams in the bubble, uh, you know, save the the Spurs and the Suns at the bottom, of course, but in the playoffs at least uh, for the Trailblazers. Uh, which is good for them because they're locked into if they're going to make the playoffs, it's going to be against the Lakers. I agree with you. It's them and the Nuggets. They're the only two that can stand toe to toe with the size that the Lakers have all of these other NBA teams. When you talk about how they're going to match up, the Clippers are going to try to beat them on the wing and the Rockets are going to try to beat them, not only with their front court, but trying to space them out with the bevy of three point shooters that they have. Uh, So yeah, the trailblazers and the Nuggets, the only two teams to have the size to try to dethrone the Lakers from that top seed. But for the Trailblazers, not much more than that.
0: Well, that will cover it as far as the on-court storylines go for this this episode. And now, kind of last topic that will be on the radio version of this episode. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, But something that's going on off the court right now, Uh, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, and Dwayne Wade, have come out and are launching what's being called the Social Change Fund, which is set up to be a fund to invest and help black communities through criminal justice reform, voter access, and civic engagement. Nick, I'll start with you on this. We've seen plenty of NBA players in the past get invested in in social issues and use their platforms uh, to do to do great things. And I think we're going to see Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade be able to do that through this social change fund. And we're in an environment right now where social justice is really in the forefront of so many people's minds. I want to get your opinion on this. I think this is a great step forward for these athletes, and I think it's going to have a trickle-down effect through the rest of the NBA and through the rest of professional sports. We're going to see a lot of guys take a step forward and push these issues even more than they are right now.
2: Yeah, I think it's really good. I think it's really good to not only bring attention to an issue, but try to solve it. You know, it's one thing to post a black square on Instagram, but it's another to actually step up and create a foundation for change. Uh, and, you know, these three guys, they're veterans of the league or retired in the case of Dwayne Wade. You know, they've been around the block before. They know they're not, they're, uh, not new to social change as well. And uh, it just goes to show up, you know, how they are as a person. They want change, and um, that's what the foundation will do.
1: Yeah, and and you can't think of a better front person for this, for Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony, two of the more beloved players in the NBA. Uh, Of course, Chris Paul in there as well. And just to echo what Nick said, uh, the NBA players, along with a lot of powerful voices in this movement here with Black Lives Matter and everything uh, that's going on, have grabbed the attention of the entire nation, myself included, everybody else included. And like Nick said, it's not just that you have their attention, it's that you act on it and and you propose solutions and situations and organizations that go into effect change. And and that's exactly what this is. That is a a poster boy example of some of the phenomenal things that have come out of the chaos over the last couple of months. And uh, I speak for everybody else on this panel, wish them the best uh, as they move forward.
0: And to dig a little bit more into uh, the meaning of this, this fund, it's not obviously something, it was just announced, but there's obviously a ton of planning that's going into this. Uh, the mission statement that can be found on the Social Change Fund website uh, reads, quote, our mission is to invest in and support organizations that are working to liberate black people and advocate for indigenous people and communities of color through the lens of policy solutions, community representation, and narrative change. Our partner organizations work to accelerate social change and sustainably build a fair, equitable society. And there are some seed contributors in this that that jump out at you. Goldman Sachs, the investment bank, uh, Beyond Meat, who has become uh, huge in the the vegetarian and vegan communities recently uh, with their products and the Reform Alliance, which is a nonprofit group. Uh, Luke, I wanna get your opinion on this. This is obviously something these guys have put a ton of planning into. This isn't a rash decision. Uh, judging by what they've got so far. This looks like something that could have a lot of success uh, with social justice issues based on the guys that are the faces of it and how much has gone into preparing for this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's not just to get those social media stars like Melo and Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul uh, behind this, but it it looks to be a very effective organization. Again, we're just learning about it here uh, for the first time, but extremely well-worded. You put the mission statement uh, here in our rundown notes, and I've been reading it a couple of times here. Extremely well-worded, well said, very apt to the current situation, the, the climate, the things that need to be addressed, uh, uh, equitable society, fair and uh, sustainable. It, it's very well said, very well put forward by these individuals, uh, and now have the force behind it. Goldman Sachs is a name that comes with a lot of baggage behind it, or a good kind of baggage, if you know what I mean, and those other organizations a uh, tremendous step forward and uh, a tremendous first step uh, for this organization.
0: And now just kind of a bigger picture issue. I want to pose this back to you. We've seen reports coming out of the NBA bubble that they're not letting the kind of buttoned down environment that they're in uh, stamp out uh, the fire that's burning for social justice, stamp out their platforms right now uh, one of the things that has been talked about so much is in these players, when they have uh, media availability, is being done via Zoom. It's being referred to as Zoom activism. You have uh, so many guys uh, in these in these media conferences uh, calling for justice for, for Breonna Taylor, for so many people around the country that have been victims of social injustice, so many that have lost their lives as a result of that. I think as we move forward, we're going to see these athletes not be afraid to step forward and not be afraid of what the consequences may be in the court of public opinion when they discuss these social justice issues. I think this is a step forward for professional sports, and I think it's something we're going to see only grow more in the coming months.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that the NBA has incubated the perfect environment for this kind of expression. You know, the world of social media, if this had happened 30 years ago, I think a lot of athletes would be hesitant to go into a bubble because they were afraid that those avenues of expressing their opinions on social change wouldn't be heard but because of you know the internet, because of social media, because of Zoom, and because of the attention of the entire nation that has been through its tumultuous couple of months with the Black Lives Matter movement and, of course, the coronavirus keeping everybody at home. They're starved for sports content, and athletes are not only giving them that, But on top of that, they're giving them these powerfully worded messages about the change that they wanted to see affected in a major way. You know, Victor Oladipo had cited that one of the reasons that he thought he might not go down to Orlando was because he was afraid that the message would be trampled out once games returned, and the NBA wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen, that athletes would continue to have a voice and be able to make their opinions and their expressions known. And I think that the NBA has created a perfect environment uh, to continue that change and to strive for that change. And hopefully uh, the other major sports leagues will do the same.
0: I don't, I don't think that could have been any more well said. And, and Nick, I'll go to you briefly to wrap this topic up. We've seen so many NBA players take a step forward in social activism in the recent weeks. Uh, Luke and I were just talking, it's going to take a step forward even more in the coming months. But this is the perfect environment, I feel like, uh, for social justice issues, for NBA, NBA players and pro, pro athletes of all kinds to be able to speak on these issues and be able to use their platforms to move these issues forward.
2: Yeah, definitely so. I mean, you look at these players, I mean, uh, especially the stars, they're role models, you know, to a lot of people. And, you know, we idolize some of these guys. And, um, you know, their opinion definitely matters, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, a platform like this, uh, obviously with the last name, you can change it to, you know, something else, uh, employing social justice, things like that. Um, I think it's it's a great idea. And I think it shows um, that these role models are taking the step forward into becoming those type of uh, role models that they want to be.
0: Well, that, that really sums up that topic the way, the way that I think it needs to be. And guys, uh, if you're listening to this on U92 radio, whether it's the online stream, whether it's terrestrial radio, uh, this is where we're going to leave you. However, uh, despite the fact that our radio time slot is up, if you listen to the podcast version of this show, uh, every week there's going to be an extra special bonus segment Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about the NBA draft, going to be talking about the NBA's Atlantic Division and the team needs uh, going into the draft that those franchises will have. So if you want to hear us uh, break down the Atlantic Division teams and their draft needs, head over to United to the Moose on SoundCloud. Check out the rest of this episode for the special bonus segment. Thank you for listening. If you're on the podcast, we're going to keep going. Uh, but if you're listening on the radio, this has been beyond the arc on U92, the Moose.
2: All right. Since, uh, since it's not the podcast version, Daniel, I have a question. Uh, I've seen the Photoshop version, but if Gordon Hayward had Reaganomics on the back of his jersey, how funny would that be? <laughs> 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 has like the basketball behind it. Reaganomics on the back. Oh, my. <laughs> be, your thoughts. Your thoughts, ladies and gentlemen. The floor is oh, open. Oh, That'd be some more years. Anyone? <laughs> Anyone? Caruso. <laughs> Is it?
0: <laughs> oh.
2: All right. Ricky Ruby. Uh, nah, he's fine. Not, Ruby, not, yeah. not him, not him, not him. I'm trying to think of like, who's the guy on the Knicks? that like laughed at LeBron. He's Luke someone Cornette. that would have. Well, who? Luke Cornett. I think so. Maybe him. Hazonia um, was,
1: was the one that blocked the shot and then laughed at him when he was laying down. Yeah,
2: Mario Hazonia. That's the one I was thinking of.
1: <laughs> no, no he, he's too busy putting free meek on his.
2: <laughs> Do we know some of them yet? This is on the podcast, yeah, a bunch right? of it's, them. It's, it's, it's all right. This is the podcast.
1: Yeah, a bunch yeah. of them have been censored by the league, but they were announced as to what they were going to say. Um, and, and, yeah, a lot of them have been uh, – I think all the Wizards ones were released. Most of them are just vote.
2: Nice. um good
1: uh, yeah but yeah, good with, yeah sure
2: any uh free israel on uh tomorrow <laughs> <Mario> his <Hazonia's>? um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway atlantic division
0: right there atlantic division starting right. uh, we'll go top to bottom on these teams just breaking down uh, their team needs and in their pick ranges who might be able to fill those needs we'll start with the toronto raptors currently number two seed in the eastern conference as it stands right now, they hold picks number 28 in the first round and number 58 in the second round. Uh, Nick, I'll start with you. Toronto Raptors, team needs pick number 28, pick number 58. What are they looking at?
2: Well, when you look, it's important to note that this is a definitely relatively weaker um, draft class anyway. And even if it wasn't, when you're in the pick 28, you're looking for a big project. So I would say based on the veterans in what positions that the Raptors were in, I was thinking something in the backcourt that they can really try to develop. I don't have a specific player. I haven't looked that deep into the draft in all honesty because I know a lot of these guys are going straight to the G League, if that. Um, But if I'm the Raptors, I'm looking for a guy in the backcourt, maybe a one guard, even a two guard that can can really be developed. Someone who's uh, probably on the younger side as well with a lot of upside.
1: One of the things you need to keep in mind when you look at the Toronto Raptors is this is going to be a very interesting offseason for them. They clear about $40 million in cap space. Marcus Saul making $22 million, Ibaka making $22 million. Van Vliet making nine, dollars Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Chris Bruchet. Now obviously, they're going to try to do what they can to bring back some of those players, specifically Fred Van Vliet. Uh, but they're going to have some cap space if they want it to spend in the offseason. If they go after a wing, which is what I think they'll do, a Danilo Gallinari or a Davis Bertans maybe to try to get another shooter uh, and if that's the the blueprint that they follow, I think that they're going to be big man heavy when it comes to the draft picking there at 28. I think there's some very good options. Isaiah Stewart from Washington. He's a six, nine traditional big who can step out and shoot a little bit. Jalen Smith from Maryland. I've been reading up on him recently and he's going to be my darling of this draft episode. I'm sure I'll have more as other episodes come six foot 10 defense first guy, but he shot 37% from three last year in college and I always mess up this last player's name, uh, the The big that took over in Memphis. Precious, is it Achua is how you say his name?
0: Yes, Precious uh, Achua.
1: Okay. Well, I, I like to think of him as a very poor man's Pascal Siakam. So, if they just want to go to town on the Siakam-Ananobi kind of big, uh, lengthy, uh, quick uh, – defensive minded forward they could go that direction as well uh next right they could also get a guard elijah hughes maybe if they wanted to get just a big guard to break up the lowry van vliet logjam of players that are six foot and under uh but specifically with that early first round pick i think that they're going to go big
0: i i totally agree with with your thoughts there luke they are going to have a ton of room to work with in the in the free agency and i think that's going to drive what they do in this draft i really like jalen smith Uh, who you were just uh, giving glowing praise there too. I agree with you totally on that front. I think he may honestly be off the board before uh, the Nets come to pick. I think there's some teams in the early 20s uh, that will like his combination of shot blocking and three-point shooting. I'm not the biggest Isaiah Stewart fan. I think he sneaks into the back end of the first round, but I don't love him uh, as a player. When it comes to bigs, honestly – uh, you may even, if he can fall this far, look at somebody a little more developmental because obviously this is a Toronto team looking to win now. They're going to try to add in free agency to this team. Somebody like Alexei Pokiasevsky uh, out of Serbia, he's seven foot, 195 pounds, uh, but he can play out on the perimeter. He blocks shots as well, and he can handle the ball uh, really, really well on the perimeter. An outstanding playmaker for that size. He's obviously. Uh, played in some of the lower levels uh, of Europe, playing in Serbia, not exactly uh, playing at the highest level overseas. Uh, but if if the Raptors at 28 are looking to go in a direction uh, for a more developmental piece, and Alexei Pokusevsky's there, I think they jump all over that.
1: Perhaps. He's 18 years old, like you said, and he's 190 pounds. So, you know, you're looking for two years of experience and then probably 40 pounds of muscle that you're going to have to put on him. Uh, before he really starts to be that center of the future. That would be a fantastic pick if they go ahead and exercise their bird rights and re-sign Marcus Saul. Uh, they're going to need something in the meantime if he's going to walk. That's a player that's very interesting, he, a lottery ticket for me. So it really just becomes Toronto, just to, to your point there, Daniel, whether or not you want a, a win-now eighth-man piece or a lottery ticket in a big man that may not help you the season after, but down the road, could develop into uh, even a superstar, you know, the next uh, Djokic or Bol Bol with that length and athleticism combination.
0: I'm not sure Pokiasevsky falls into the classic category of the Bruno Kaboklo two years away from being two years away, uh, but he's definitely not somebody that's going to help you right now. And I think if they do re sign Mark Gasol, they have somebody that they can plug into that center position, but they also have somebody. Uh, that can mentor somebody like poke that's a younger player that's gonna need a lot of development obviously that kind of case you may stash him in europe for a year you may put him in the g league for a time but if you do bring him over you do roster him right away and you have mark gasol that's a guy that came in as a second round pick of the grizzlies and developed well he was actually a lakers pick traded to the grid traded to the grizzlies for his brother pow at one point uh, but Uh, Mark Gasol came in as a second round pick and developed over time, went from a European style of game uh, and still maintained some of those abilities, but became a much tougher player, a much more hard-nosed guy. I don't think there's really anybody in this league better equipped uh, to help mentor a developing European big uh, the way the game's going right now.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree for two reasons. Not only, like you said, he's a European product. So, you know, kind of been there, done that. But number two, that's the kind of skill set that you'd love to see an athletic big play with a guy that can pass out of the high post can step out and hit the three if he needs to extremely versatile player. If you talk about somebody that has that Marc Gasol style skill set, but in a much more athletic frame, you're talking about a very, very crucial franchise piece over the years. So if those two can get together, mentor, work together, and Gasol can rub that kind of talent off of a young European product in a center like that, uh, you're absolutely right, Daniel. I can't think of a better player that I would want to expose a young European big man to than Marc Gasol.
0: So that that kind of breaks down what the Toronto Raptors are going to be looking for in this draft. It's really uh, partially going to hinge on what they do in free agency. Obviously, that'll happen after the draft, but they'll have those plans in place. Another team that's outside the lottery, but has a little more to work with in this draft is the Boston Celtics. They hold... Uh, Two first-round picks, two second-round picks. The 17th pick coming over from Memphis, and then their own pick that is currently slotted in at number 26. And then second-round picks – or no, three first-round picks, actually. They have the 30th pick uh, as well, acquired in a trade with Milwaukee. So three first-round picks for the Boston Celtics, 17, 26, and 30. And then their typical second-round pick at number forty six. Nick, I go to you first, the Boston Celtics, obviously a team contending. They've got three first-round picks to work with. First of all, do you look for this team to keep three first-round picks and make selections with all of them? And then also, what needs are they going to be looking to address here?
2: Knowing the Celtics in the past, they definitely love holding on to their draft picks. I don't know if that's the best idea for this draft in particular, but um, in terms of what the Celtics have done in the past, I'd be kind of surprised if they got rid of them. I think they like building players from the ground up and getting some young guys, and I think that's a good transition to talk about the players that are interested A lot of the talk is that R.J. Hampton has been on the Celtics' radar for a long time. Obviously, this is a guy that didn't go the college route, went to New Zealand to play there. He didn't have the best – I think he he didn't have the best season there as a 19-year-old. I believe he only averaged like less than 10 points a game. He wasn't the best, but a guy with a lot of upside, a lot of – um, notoriety coming out of high school. He could be a big project, a young 19-year-old to enter this into this Celtics lineup for the years to come as more of a death piece. Then you have another job pick to use. And I personally, I like Vernon Carey a lot at Duke. I think um, the Celtics are going to look to beef up their front court and their back court, get some death pieces for the years to come. And I think Carey's a good acquisition, the, the freshman out of Duke.
1: And with not a ton of cap space in your immediate future, you'd have to assume that they're going to be forced to use all of these picks to try to land role players that they're not going to be able to get in free agency outside of them trading up to get a star and packaging picks just to move up in the draft. uh, I don't, I agree with Nick. I expect them to hang on to their picks. Uh, When you're looking at players to fall to them at 17, I think they're going to be put in a very interesting situation where one of these international players falls down the board, whether, well, obviously probably not LaMelo ball, but Theo Maladon. And Nick just said, RJ Hampton, If you're looking for a lottery pick to pick at 17 and you have the safety net of the other three picks behind him, I could see that being something uh, that the Celtics do with that pick. Another player I identified for them to beef up their backcourt, uh, Jameis Ramsey we talked about. We saw him here in the Big 12 shooting 43% from three. Has some versatility to his name as well, 15 points, four rebounds. And then on top of that, um, this is a team that's really missing uh, the departure of Al Horford. And there isn't an Al Horford in this draft – but they are going to need to develop a better big than Ennis Cantor here. So those bigs that I read off for the the, the Raptors a minute ago, the Jalen Smiths, the Isaiah Stewarts, the Preston Sachuas come to mind. Uh, Daniel Toro, if he fell that far down the board, a very, very interesting player as well. Uh, you know, if I was, you know, gun to my head, mock draft here for these first couple of picks, I would expect them, Uh, To get a little spicy there with that first pick, try to get an aggressive scorer like an R.J. Hampton, and then look to address their center and their forwards position there with 26 and 30. Yeah,
0: That that makes a lot of sense to me. Somebody that I think would be a a really good fit as an immediately uh, contributing player for this Celtics team. Uh, maybe maybe would only be a bench piece, but he's, like you said, Luke, they're going to need to fill this roster out through this draft. I think if you can get Sadiq Bey with that 17th pick, I think he probably may even sneak up into the back end of the lottery. I like him a lot. I like what he brings to the table. And And then I want to pose another question to you guys. Because this team needs guys that are going to be able to contribute right away, and, and a lot of the guards that are projected to go mid-first round, like Theo Maladon, like uh, like RJ Hampton, may need a year or two to come around. You look at somebody that has gotten a little bit of first-round buzz but hasn't been uh, considered all that much of a, of a, I would say, a star potential guy, somebody that isn't expected uh, to be a huge name. Trey Jones out of Duke is somebody – that I expect to be able to contribute as a backup point guard right away. If you're looking to add to that backcourt, obviously Trey Jones, uh, a a stellar two years at Duke, uh, but not expected to be an NBA star. I think he's somebody that if the Celtics are sniffing around in the back end of the first round and they want somebody to contribute right away in their backcourt, that they're not going to need to develop all that much. I think Trey Jones is an option to look at.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And be ready to copy and paste my response because he was a player I identified for the next team we were going to talk about in the Philadelphia 76ers looking to have a conventional point guard on the roster um, behind Ben Simmons. Trey Jones, excellent fit, experienced player. Uh, you know, he didn't shoot as well as I would hope, under the, under 50% from the field, 36% from three, over six assists, 16 points, veteran point guard. You could also go that route with Devin Dotson if you want to from Kansas if, you, if you're looking for an experienced player. Uh, to contribute right away. Sadiq Bay. believe it or not, Daniel, was also a player I identified for the 76ers. So I'll circle back around to them when we talk about the Sixers in a moment. But when you're looking for those polished point guards, you look at Dotson, you look at Trey Jones, you know, maybe a little undersized, 6'1", 6'2", respectively, uh, but definitely somebody that you could put in that situation. You know, Kemba Walker with a volatile injury history, Marcus Smart as well, to have on the bench that can give you significant minutes right away.
0: Okay, so you guys mentioned a couple times uh, that, I, that I pointed out, guys, for the Celtics that you saw as better fits with the Philadelphia 76ers. We move on down to them. Sixers with five picks, just one in the first round at number 22, and then four in the second round, 34, 36, 49, and the second-to-last pick of the draft, 59. Uh, Nick, I'll start with you. When it comes to the Philadelphia 76ers, Sadiq Bey has already been mentioned. Trey Jones has already been mentioned. Do you have any other names that stick out to you, especially at that 22nd pick that could fill a team need uh, for the 76ers?
2: With the 22nd pick, I highlighted Trey Jones, and that's going to be a lot higher than others, but I'm a big fan of him. I watched a lot of his highlights at Duke. He had a huge boost in production from his first year into his second year. I understand that could be a little high. I understand he's more of a second-round pick, but I'm a huge personal fan of him. The Sixers, they need someone who could step up as that backup point guard. And with Jones' experience at Duke, he's had two successful seasons with them at the moment. I think he's the perfect pick for them personally. And I understand that could be a little bit of a stretch, given where he's projected more towards the second round, but I'm a huge fan of him on the Sixers.
1: Yeah, I had Trey Jones as well. I don't think Philadelphia needs to take him at 22. I think they could scoop him up with 34, 36, or one of those early second-round picks that they have. Sadiq Bey, obviously, that would be somebody I could see them reaching for because everybody knows that this is a Sixers team that needs shooting depth. You know, after losing the guys that they did to the Clippers and the trade that they made, uh, they need to replace it with guys like Sadiq Bey. I also highlighted a guy from BYU, Jake Toolson, six foot five wing who shot 47 percent from three, 15 points, five rebounds, four assists. He's a very versatile player. He's a guy that might not even have his name called at all, but when you have picks that late in the draft like Philadelphia, he's a, a shooter-specific guy that I could see them going to along with Jones if they need that backup point guard. If they can move. Simmons off the ball, used him as an on-ball screener, which is something that they've had success with in the past. They'll need a traditional playmaking point guard uh, to go with it and one that can shoot on top of that in Trey Jones. And then one more name, and I wanted to bring him up again with Brooklyn because I wanted to get uh, Nick's uh, opinion on it, is I really think that somebody's going to take a chance early in the second round, late first round on Marcus Howard from Marquette just because of his insane scoring ability and his limitless range. I understand he's five foot eleven and probably a defensive liability, but you can hide a player like Howard on a team like the Sixers with how much length that they have. So when you have so many picks, so much capital in the second round, why not buy the lottery ticket that is Marcus Howard with the tremendous upside that you could have in him as an elite shooter potentially at the NBA level?
0: From my perspective, when you look at this 76ers team, I think uh, somebody that can contribute right away that I think could be had with that 22nd pick, it may be a little bit of a reach. Uh, I've seen this guy mocked from the early 20s, uh, really to the early 30s, early in that second round, and that's Robert Woodard II out of Mississippi State. Uh, just looking at his measurables and the production he had in college, this guy just screams Robert Covington 2.0 at me. Uh, he's coming out of out of Mississippi state at six foot seven two hundred and thirty pounds seven foot wingspan uh, guarded uh point guard through power forward one two, three, and four uh, as a really smothering perimeter defender uh for a Mississippi state team that did have an up and down season. He played out of position some and then he shot forty three percent from three uh, with solid with uh good looking mechanics. I like the way he shoots the ball it's not a flat shot or anything and he's shown a little bit of straight-line drivability, uh, but he also uh, doesn't, play with, doesn't play outside of himself. He knows uh, he's a 3-and-D guy. He can knock down shots, and he can attack closeouts with a jump shot uh, as a result. I really like Robert Woodard's fit here, and I think uh, that uh, for the Philadelphia 76ers, if you're looking for an immediate contributor, again, like we've said with Trey Jones, not somebody that has a huge ceiling, but somebody with a floor that can be a contributor right away.
1: You know, I'm, I'm lukewarm with a player like Woodard. When you look at his stats, and again, he was rushed into much more production than he had the year before, 16-minute increase per game, averaging 33 minutes uh, this year for Mississippi State. And you mentioned the shooting totals uh, and a tremendous rebounder. At well, it's 6.5 per game. The two things that concern me the most, I'm always hesitant to draft NBA prospects that aren't centers that don't shoot well from the free throw line. And this is a guy that shot 58% as a freshman, 64% last year. Not only that, he averaged two turnovers a game to just 1.3 assists. So he's not a playmaker, but he does turn the ball over a little bit too much. But to uh, argue against myself, Daniel, if he goes into that Robert Covington role, which is one that surely the Sixers miss after trading him and Dario Saric away, uh, he wouldn't need to have the ball in his hands that much. He'd be more so a, a run around on the wing and be a spot-up shooter, which would be a perfect situation for him, I think, adjusting to the NBA level. Um, and I don't know if you're the Sixers. I definitely wouldn't use pick 22 on him. If he fell back around early second round, I I would agree with you. That would be a, another interesting NBA-ready prospect.
0: So that should cover it for the Philadelphia 76ers. The three playoff teams, uh, at least – well, Brooklyn Nets are still currently in the playoffs. They're sitting in that seventh seed. So – Uh, The top four teams in the Atlantic Division are all in playoff spots. The fourth one is the Brooklyn Nets. And Nick, I'll start with you, obviously, the big Nets fan on this podcast and at U92. The Nets, two picks in this draft, just the traditional way, number 20 and number 55. Uh, This is a Nets team that has kind of been in flux. Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant both signed last offseason. Irving missed a good bit of time. He's not going to play in the bubble in Orlando Uh, Kevin Durant is not going to play at all this year. So for the Brooklyn Nets, picking later in the first round, what are you looking for them to fill a need with uh, coming into the upcoming draft?
2: I'll say this. uh, We can spend very little time on Brooklyn because I think there's maybe a 10% chance they keep this pick. Uh, They've had no intention of keeping this pick at the moment, that late first round pick that they have, the 19-20 range. Um, I, 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 the only direction I see this going is trading for someone like Zach Levine who wants out of Chicago or maybe a, a third star for that Brooklyn team. Sean Marks has repeatedly stated that he wants a third star on this team. There's going to be some role players that go with it, but this, for, this draft pick right here is going to be the main catalyst in it. I have zero, zero, zero hope that the Brooklyn Nets keep this pick. If you want to look at a pick, then I would say they beef up. Maybe their backcourt get someone like Nico Mannion out of Arizona, someone who has a lot of upside, another young guy that they can work with. But um, that's just a name. I think there's a 0% chance that they keep this pick.
1: Yeah, I would have to agree with Nick there. I mentioned Marcus Howard being an awesome fit on this team, but obviously you're not going to take him at 20. If they make a trade, they'd have to acquire an early second-round pick and then take him. Uh, if they keep it at 20, I, I think I'd go in an opposite direction as opposed to Nick. I think that they need to beef up their center position. I I, I don't understand. I don't know what DeAndre Jordan's status is right now, but I have uh, differing opinions on Jared Allen. There are things that he does extremely well, and there's things that he does extremely poorly, and one of those things is he's not a great rebounder. So if you can grab a traditional big like an Adoka Azubuki or one of these many other forwards we were talking about, the Isaiah Stewart's or the Preston Sichuas, that would be the direction that they go. But like Nick said, I, I would put money on them not having this pick come draft time.